0: Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. This week, we are featuring a public conversation I had with author Stuart Bennett at the 2021 Charleston Literary Festival. We talked about his novel, The Charleston Gambit, which is set in the 1780s and provides a glimpse into the Revolutionary War in South Carolina. Well, Stuart, you are someone who's come to South Carolina Uh, How did you get interested in South Carolina history, and particularly with the Revolution?
1: Well, I have to acknowledge, Walt Disney was to blame, and I watched every episode of that uh, Swamp Fox television program when I was a a wee tyke, and um, I think that probably inspired me. I remained a historical nut, went through college, moved to England became a fine art auctioneer at Christie's where my specialty was antiquarian books and I started collecting 18th century books dealing in them this gradually sort of built up on me and when I came to South Carolina for the first time to Charleston it was sort of like like paradise it was you know 18th century houses with palmetto trees outside which had a kind of irresistible appeal to a native Southern California boy. The perfect place to have an antique bookshop, right? (laughs) (laughs) That was the one thing that didn't work out. (laughs) Uh, I am grateful. Uh, There are a lot of things that I'm not happy about about the internet, but I'm grateful to the internet in that it's provided a worldwide forum. uh, And so the bookstore didn't work, and then you decided to become a lawyer. I I thought I had to get a job, and I went to Carolina Law School, took my degree in 1992. I think that possibly a 42-year-old law school graduate didn't have quite the right appeal to Charlestonian law firms, but I had a very nice offer in San Francisco, and I moved back to California, raised my son, and I'm grateful to my wife, Jenny, for bringing me back to Charleston, and when, when she did, I had already written three novels on other topics, including one about a central character in this novel, Lord Rawdon. I knew that Rawdon had been a British off- officer stationed in South Carolina, that he, he actually came to the American theater in 1774, participated in the battle at Bunker Hill, and was promoted through the ranks. I knew he'd been in South Carolina and that he had come with General Clinton's expeditionary force which besieged Charleston in the spring of 1780. I didn't know much beyond that. And so I dived right in. Well, you've got a picture of Rawdon on the front of your book.
0: And you also mentioned that, uh, I did not mention him at all in my history, of the revolution (laughs) in South Carolina. The way that you have written it's actually a great South Carolina tradition, and I think I'd like to start off with that. In the tradition of William Gilmore Sims, probably South Carolina's best known, certainly in the 19th century, greatest writer, he wrote six novels based upon the revolution, his six revolutionary novels. And I did, I did write them down because I, I have read them all at one time or another, but they've, they've become kind of rediscovered of, of late. And I will tell you, I've, I used his novels in, in researching the revolution because Simms had access to revolutionary documents. And when he mentions incidents, particularly in the back country and the way the war evolved or devolved, or however the term you might want to, the cycle of violence between Tories uh, and partisans, the patriots. Uh, Sims captured those stories, and so did you.
1: Well, I, I consider that high praise if I'm put in the same rank as, as William Gilmore Sims, or I'm, I'm happy to even be several ranks below, but in the same, in the same to, to be mentioned in the same sentence. Um, and of course, I, I read, I did not read all of Sims's South Carolina novels. Um, I, I like Sims, but... He, He's good in small doses.
0: <laughs> Couldn't agree more. <laughs> uh, and and if, if folks, if you're not familiar with the way Sims wrote, uh, he's in the style of James Fenimore Cooper. If, if you all had to read, I had to read The Last of the Mohicans from when I was in high school. Well, books like uh, The Partisan or The Forayers or Jocelyn, uh, which is really the first of his revolutionary novels. Uh, it's very much in the same style as as Cooper. And it's they are very detailed. The local details are important. And that's, Stuart, that's what you've done in the Charleston Gambit. You have you have those details, whether it's what's going on in a tavern or what a gunsmith's shop might look like. You don't just say that Polly's daddy had a gun and it was a gunsmith. You talk about the tools, the different weapons that would be in the shop. Incredible detail. And you get down to earth of what was really going on in here with the occupation, the British occupation of Charleston. And you have a very fascinating discussion of a Charleston bordello, which I think you might want to share with our audience.
1: (laughs) It's It's funny how that scene came almost all at once. Um, And the background for it is based on my career as an antiquarian bookseller. In the early 80s, I started to put aside what I consider to be low-life literature, all of it now very, very rare. Um, It certainly had brisk sales on its publication. And in fact, the the period of the Charleston Gambit, the period of the American Revolution, was a, almost a high point in the freedom with which this kind of literature was published in, in London. There was a man named Harris who for 10 or 12 years produced what he called, rather um, euphemistically, a list of the Covent Garden ladies. Well, the list of the Covent Garden ladies gave you the exact locations, the exact descriptions, and the exact specialities of the women who were for hire in the area of Covent Garden. And there were novels that were published. One of the ones that stuck in my mind was by a man named George Alexander Stevens. It was called The Adventures of a Speculist. And he has a long account of of a woman of the town. And that all came together prompted by a very brief reference in John Peebles's diary. John Peebles was a, a British army captain who was part of the siege of Charleston. He went back to New York with Clinton in June of 1780. And there's a reference, most of the Revolutionary War diaries don't talk about these things, but Peebles mentioned a, a, a lady in Newport Rhode Island of particularly fine and genteel appearance who kept a house of pleasure to a much higher standard than usual. So I decided that it was time to to write a uh, house of pleasure um, to a, a much higher standard outside Charleston and it's there. And I found as I was clattering away on the computer writing this scene that there was a there was a, a ditty from a Patrick O'Brien novel, probably somebody in this audience will be able to identify the novel, and I don't claim that, I'll, that I will quote it exactly, but it kept repeating itself in my head. It, it's something that Jack Aubrey sings and it goes something along the lines of, you ladies of lubricity who de- dwell in a bordello. Hey, hey, ha, ha, he, he, ho, ho. I am your kind of fellow. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, it's, it's that kind of detail that, uh, for those of us who know and love the history of South Carolina, that are special. Uh, you just didn't say there was a bawdy house, but the madam plays a, a role in helping our heroine through some difficult times. So anyway, uh, you've, got, you've got other wonderful details like that. But this love story, this is not a bodice ripper, ladies and gentlemen. (laughs) Uh, It is a love story, and quite frankly, Polly, the heroine, um, sometimes her conduct is, I'm not sure what her grandmother would have said, that she if she went unchaperoned to a house where everybody else there was a British officer, even though they were gentlemen, and he noted Lord Rawdon, her love, reminded her it was okay she could stay there on chaperone because her door could be bolted from the inside. It might do in the 21st century with certain TV programs, but I'm not sure how that would have gone on in the 18th century.
1: (laughs) No doubt about it. She was, uh, I I think by 18th century standards, Polly's behavior would have been considered on the wild side. I made her something of a scholar. And I also took a bit of inspiration uh, from the story of Emily Geiger, who, or possibly Geiger, who is said to have stepped up when her father was too ill to carry a message from General Greene to General Sumter, uh, just after my character, Lord Rawdon's, relieving the uh, Green Siege of 96 in June of 1781. Emily Geiger or Geiger took the message from General Green and rode Hell for Leather across country and was caught by Lord Rawdon's men. Mm-hmm. And some of the accounts I've read suggest that she was even brought before Lord Rawdon himself. Lord Rawdon, being the gentleman that he was, had her locked in a room until he could get a respectable matron to come and search her. Mm-hmm. So while she was locked in the room, she ate the message. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, and, and you self-corrected when you said Geiger instead of Geiger because in Lexington and Newberry County, Orangeburg County, the German settlements, it's spelled G-E-I-G-E-R and every German would say it's supposed to be Geiger, but- in the Carolina backcountry, it's Giger. Uh, they, they have their pronunciations, just as Charlestonians have the way that they pronounce certain names. But yes, she was, she was a, a genuine heroine, one of, of many uh, actual women who uh, were a great help to the Patriot cause. This is Walter Edgar. This week, we are featuring a public conversation I had with author Stuart Bennett at the 2021 Charleston Literary Festival. We talked about his novel, The Charleston Gambit, which is set in the 1780s and provides a glimpse into the Revolutionary War in South Carolina. Probably my favorite Carolina heroine is a woman named Jane Black Thomas. Uh, She lived in Spartan District. And since I'm over 60, I can say she was over 60. And in 1781, that was considered to be old. And she was the wife of the commander of the Spartan Regiment, who was in a prisoner of war in 96th District. He got ill, and in those days if a prisoner got ill, the word went out for a family or a friend to come help because the British weren't going to take care of an ill prisoner. So she went there, and one morning she heard some English officers' wives talking about they were going to go on a raid into the Spartan District to ambush the Spartan Regiment, a partisan regiment. Well. This woman, who was over 60, stole her horse, a horse, rode through 50 miles of enemy-occupied territory to warn the Spartan Regiment, which then ambushed the British at the First Battle of Cedar Springs. I used to tell my classes, here is somebody who really actually finished her mission and warned the Americans. Compare that with Paul Revere. You know, he was on a paved turnpike. (laughs) And he he only got halfway down saying the British are coming, the British are coming, the British are coming. I guess the difference is Longfellow wanted to have a famous forebear, so he did the poem that we all had to memorize back in the fifth grade. But here's, you know, you mentioned Emily Giger, uh, Jane Black Thomas, there were a number of heroines because during the revolution in South Carolina, it affected everybody regardless of class or race or gender.
1: And you deal with that pretty honestly. Well, I do, did my best. I, I also wanted, maybe a little perversely, particularly in Charleston where Lord Rawdon, to the extent that he's remembered at all, mm-hmm. is remembered with loathing um, as the man responsible for the hanging of Isaac Hayne. Mm-hmm. Um, Let's explain the hanging of Isaac Hayne. You and I know the story, sure. but not everybody might know that story. Sure. Isaac Hayne was, was a patriot. Um, he was not present in Charleston when Charleston surrendered uh, to the British in, in May of 1780. He was, at the time that the, the British were going around taking paroles, and later subsequent to a proclamation by General Clinton, which Walter, go ahead. Now, in the 18th century, parole
0: was, if you were captured, uh, you would sign a document saying you would not take up, you would not fight the king and you go, you go home. So that it's a lot different from the paroles we think of now, but that was a very common uh, military practice in, in the 18th century, and the British gave parole initially to everybody who surrendered with Charleston. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Then they revoked the parole of certain ones.
1: And this is where Isaac gets caught. This is, this is where Isaac got caught because he, when he came into Charleston that summer with his family sick with smallpox, the British told him he would not be allowed to return home with medicine unless he swore allegiance to the King of England. So he signed the paper and returned home where most of his family died anyway. And in 1781, when the Patriot forces were advancing into the Low Country and were no longer, there was no longer a kind of protective cordon around the area um, where Hayne lived, which was near Hayne considered himself no longer bound by the terms of his agreement to serve the king. And he became colonel of a Patriot regiment. And there's some irony in the fact that he set off to try to capture another Patriot officer named Williamson who had given his parole in the back country and was thought to be giving information to the British. So Haine went off to try to capture Williamson. Um, in the end, Hane himself was captured and uh, he was hanged as a turncoat. He argued that he'd given a parole. The British argued that he had signed a paper giving an oath of allegiance to the king, which made him a traitor, but they were also hanging people who had broken paroles. So it was also the British argued a fair tit-for-tat that Haines should be hanged because the Americans had hanged the British officer, John Andre, the previous autumn. And that was another story to do with the treachery of Benedict Arnold, but uh, John Andre was caught as a spy, caught in plain clothes. He was, in fact, on a mission for, for the British, and he was hanged. So, Haine was a decent and honorable man, and there is a fair amount of discussion of this in the novel, but Hayne was imprisoned and then summarily hanged. And of course, all of this in the background, besides you mentioned the Americans
0: had hanged uh, Andre, the British were beginning to have a lot of problems in South Carolina. They were losing control of a small perimeter outside of Charleston where folks like Francis Marion, Thomas Sumter, and Andrew Pickens were pretty much operating at will. The British had some strong points at Camden. And by the way, Camden, is the town is a big part of your story. Uh, it was the major backcountry town and actually one of the few real towns in the backcountry in the South, period. It was a major trading post uh, and a major British strong point. But so were places like Rocky Mount and, of course, the fort at, at, at 96. But beyond those British outposts, those strong points, um, the countryside belonged to the partisans. Back in the 1970s, there was a very interesting little pamphlet put out during the South Carolina Tricentennial that compared the Revolutionary War, the way the British misfought it, to the way the Americans were fighting in Vietnam. The Americans controlled the strong strong points, and they controlled everything during the day. But the the night belonged to the Viet Cong. Mm -hmm. Uh, This was by an army major. And it's the first time people began to take a new look at the American Revolution in South Carolina. And today, in military history classes at West Point, in the Commanded General Staff College out at Fort Leavenworth. The Battle of Cowpens is regularly taught as a significant, one of the most significant battles in military history.
1: General Morgan, who commanded the, the American troops at Cowpens, was a, a strategic innovator. It was an extraordinary battle. There was a Major Archibald MacArthur who was captured by the Americans at Cowpens, and they paroled him. And I think it was um, John Eager Howard who recorded the conversation Mm -hmm. where uh, the crusty old Major MacArthur said, I was an officer before Tarleton was born, Mm -hmm. and the finest troops in the service have been sacrificed by that boy. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Referring to Bannister Tarleton.
0: I must say, you give Tarleton his due. There are people who have tried to rescue Tarleton's reputation, and I don't understand why,
1: but they have. I, I take I take my cue uh, on Tarleton. And of course, he's basically caricatured in, in the Mel Gibson movie, The Patriot. But there was a, a wonderful contemporary reference to him by the playwright Richard Brinsley Sheridan, who was a member of Parliament at the time. and. Someone mentioned that Tarleton boasted that he'd killed more men and lain with more women than any other, any other soldier in the American Revolution, to which Sheridan replied, lain with, lain with doesn't say it, ravished is the word he should have used. Rapes, said Sheridan, are the relaxation of a murderer. Well, everybody, familiar with Tarleton and the the Battle of the
0: Waxhaws, Tarleton's quarter, Tarleton's massacre. Uh, But before the fall of Charleston, he had actually been involved in a a skirmish just outside of Charleston. Monk's Corner. Yes, at Monk's Corner, where he had done exactly the same thing. And ironically, James Ferguson, who would be killed at King's Mountain, the British commander there, uh, had actually recommended that Tarleton be censured uh, for his conduct, the conduct of his men, and Cornwallis wouldn't have any part of it. Right.
1: Ferguson also, uh, because there were three of Tarleton's men who had assaulted, let's leave it at that, three, and in fact, they were Tory women. Uh, the nearby plantation. Yes, yes. And, L- L- Lady Jane Colleton,
0: who was yeah. the wife of a British nobleman, and there
1: were Tory ladies there. Yes, they were and, uh, and assaulted. Ferguson wanted, wanted those troopers of Tarleton's to be hanged. That didn't happen either. I think they were... Yeah. Well, we could let... go on and on. <laughs> <laughs>
0: well, um, th- the novel opens with the Siege of Charleston. So let's kind of walk our our audience through,
1: through the book. My character, Polly Cooper, who is on a trip from Camden with her father to try to bring some fresh arms to Polly's two brothers who are with the Patriot Army in the Siege of Charleston. And they get news of the reinforcements that have just landed and taken up positions east of the Cooper River. And Polly's father says, we'll turn back. There's no, there's no hope of getting to Charleston. Polly decides to run away. She has the two rifles for her brothers in her saddlebags. Not her, they're not in her father's saddlebags. So she takes her horse and runs off to try to get to L'Emprier's bastion, which was the, the, the last major fortress east of the Cooper River by the, where, where the Wando River comes in. She, she th- thinks she knows her way there. She thinks she can get there. And instead she's taken prisoner by Lord Rawdon's men. So it all starts. Rawdon allows her to proceed to Charleston Uh, without the rifles for her brothers. So she's present at the time that Charleston finally surrenders to General Clinton. She gets to to Charleston, and Charleston under
0: siege. This is where I was fascinated with your detail of the description of, well, I was going to say, what was like everyday life, except there wasn't much everyday life going on in Charleston but as the siege was reaching its end. And the dissension within American ranks, she had stopped at Middleton Place, I believe. And Mr. Middleton had said, well, if the governor had surrendered three months ago, we wouldn't be having all these problems. <laughs> That's right now. <laughs> uh, uh, and the British, after the, after Charleston fell, said that there were Americans giving them information on where uh, artillery batteries were. Uh, clearly, there were some patriots in Charleston, but there were also a lot of folks who just uh, Want a business as usual, and let's get this war over with. And she has difficulty. She is a fiery patriot. Uh, and frankly, a couple of times when she sassed off to the British, I'm surprised that she did not receive rough treatment. <laughs> she had a pretty sharp tongue on her, so she should. She's a good patriot. <laughs> well, she she had she's already had her first meeting with Lord Rawdon, and so. As the British begin to move out of Charleston into the backcountry, he ends up in Camden for a good part of his military tour in South Carolina, and of course that's where her family home really is. Yeah, in Camden.
1: Yeah, Rawdon. Interestingly, and and Walter Walter referred to my pointing out that he did not mention Lord Rawdon in his book Partisans and Redcoats, and and. One of the reasons that Rawdon gets such short shrift, I think, is that Rawdon was one of the comparatively few British officers in, in the backcountry who did not sort of wantonly hang patriots. Nathaniel Green, who was the uh, commander of the Continental Army in the South, after Gates's, General Gates's absolute and utter defeat at the Battle of Camden in August of 1780, when General Green came, came and took over in December 1780, Green sent a letter of complaint about the, the seemingly random and unprovoked hangings that were committed by, and he mentioned Cornwallis, he mentioned Tarleton, he mentioned Colonel Turnbull who commanded at Rocky Mount. Conspicuous by his absence was Lord Rawdon, uh, and and conspicuous by their absence was Rawdon's regiment called the Volunteers of Ireland, which was not some that they were they were Irish, but they were substantially the regiment composed of Irish deserters from George Washington's army at Valley Forge during that winter, and. Rawdon turned them into a fighting regiment, which committed none of the insults and outrages of Tarleton's legion. So, oddly enough, this makes Lord Rawdon a comparatively obscure figure.
0: <laughs> yeah, he wasn't, he wasn't one of the bad guys. I mean, you had, you had Weems, you had Kruger, you had Tarleton, uh, and the volunteers of Ireland that Rawdon commanded was a unit very much like the British Legion, which. Uh, Tarleton commanded, made up, it was called the British Legion, but it was made up of uh, Tories. Yep, They were mostly from Pennsylvania. Most of them, Uh, most
1: of them Northern Tories. Most Um,
0: notoriously, besides Tarleton, uh, Christian Huck, uh, who was in July was uh, killed along with a hundred of
1: his men back in the back country. Yeah. Um, I I describe, uh, uh, there there is a, in the novel, uh, a section about Huck who was another one of the bad guys of the British. And I describe Huck in a, in a historical afterword at the very end as a chip off of Tarleton's block, but without the fancy manners. The battle of Huck's defeat really was almost a turning point,
0: particularly in, in the back country. And that was just two months after the fall of Charleston.
1: Yeah. And if, and if that weren't enough, yes, there was King's Mountain, yes, uh, where where Ferguson, whom we just referred to, was leading a group of maybe 900 Tories, and was completely annihilated yes. Uh, yes. by the Patriots. And this was, this became major news in in well in Britain,
0: yeah, King, King's Mountain made Cornwallis change his entire plan for continuing further north, because what the British had thought they were going to be doing was they'd already taken Savannah and Georgia. Uh, they take South Carolina. And the idea was to roll up the southern colonies and then call it quits. And yes, they were actually... we don't have any concrete proof or, or document, but the French were seriously thinking about, you know, we've had enough the war hasn't been won. Let's just, we'll just stop the war. You hold the territory that you now have. Right. And they said, if we got the Southern colonies, we don't care about Pennsylvania, New York, and certainly don't care about New England. Yeah. And after the battle of Camden, the first battle at Camden and Fishing Creek, where Sumter got caught with his pants down, literally. Literally. Um, they thought, hey, this is a good time to, to float this idea. Right. And so that was always out there, and then the tide turns, partially thanks to Tarleton and his brutal behavior. And it was a brutal, nasty war, beginning with the saws and the massacre of American soldiers trying to surrender. After Huck's defeat, his entire unit, there were not any survivors, because those British soldiers from the British, they were from the British Legion fleeing, were cut down and left to, bodies left to rot in the yeah. woods.
1: There was, and there was a lot, of, uh, a lot of changing sides, which was why there became this, this kind of, almost an epidemic of hangings, um, because soldiers kept getting caught who had served with one army, deserted, joined the other army, been captured and discovered to, to have been deserters. And at one point towards the end of the war, Nathaniel Green said he thought that probably most of his army was made up of British deserters, and most of the uh, British army was made up of American deserters. <laughs> Andrew Pickens is a case of, of he switched sides and ended up
0: obviously yeah. on, 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 yeah. on the Patriot side. after the wax saws in the backcountry. And the British complained about how the Americans had exaggerated what happened. And it was terrible, all these stories that they, that they passed. But it, it didn't take but a few days, literally, for the word, at, at the massacre, to spread throughout the backcountry of the two Carolinas. Right. Right. And in the 18th century, if you were surrendering, you asked for quarter. When I was a kid, if you in a fight and you said, uncle, that meant I'm giving up. Well, quarter meant I'm giving up and you surrender. Well, Americans were asking for quarter. They were cut down. They were bayoneted. One thing, the British, they weren't wasting lead shooting soldiers. They, gave, they used cavalry, sabers and bayonets. And it was a really brutal. So in the back country, Americans would say "Partisans would say and their English were surrendering. We'll give you Tarleton's quarter, right? right. Which meant you got bayoneted. Um, and, and you
1: use another interesting term, the Georgia parole, <laughs> right? Georgia, the, the Georgia parole uh, meant that it was a different form of Tarleton's quarter. You were simply shot summarily. Yeah. You didn't matter whether you'd surrendered. You got a Georgia parole. Um, and part of, the, part of that, I mean—I think the saying may have come out of some of the, uh, the incidents uh, around Augusta.
0: This is Walter Edgar. This week we are featuring a public conversation I had with author Stuart Bennett at the 2021 Charleston Literary Festival. We talked about his novel, The Charleston Gambit, which is set in the 1780s and provides a glimpse into the Revolutionary War in South Carolina. You know, if you try to, to sit, take yourself back in the 18th century, particularly if you are a woman with a family and your husband's gone off uh, to fight with, with Marion or Sumter, these are women on isolated homesteads. And what they went through is pretty grim. Yeah. It's pretty grim. Yeah. The war in South Carolina, and these figures come from the uh, United States Army history, official. In 1780, which is of course the crucial year you're talking about in the book, a 1,000 Americans died in uniform. 66% of those men who died in uniform died in South Carolina. And 2,000 Americans in uniform were wounded in action. 90% of those were in South Carolina. In the last two years of fighting, which we take it into 1781, and the senseless death of John Lawrence and, and others, in the last two years of fighting, of all the Americans killed in action during the entire revolution, 18% of them were killed in those two years here in South Carolina, and 31% of all the Americans who were wounded in uniform during the entire revolution, were wounded in this state in those two years alone. So the amount of death and suffering that took place in this state was was absolutely uh,
1: And I think it's worth incredible. pointing out too that, that all of those figures are the American side and the Americans were giving at least as good as they got. Yeah, and by the time that Cornwallis who described himself as I think I think having enough of his South Carolina adventures. Yeah, yes. I'm not going to have any more adventures, pal. <laughs> That's right. So he he basically, uh, for one of the better term, he basically buggered off and went back up with this notion that he seemed to cling to, that he would simply sweep his way through North Carolina, into Virginia, um, and that that he would be waving his flag, and that young Tory men would be flocking to the banner, and that he would sweep Virginia clean, and that would be that. And if if the French had decided that they wanted a peace that was based on what, what the armies held at that particular time, well, as Walter said, the British would keep the South, which was by far the most valuable territory to them. It was the link to their Caribbean sugar colonies, which they'd been losing to the French. They, want, they would want those back, and that would be the basis of the peace, and that those bloody-minded Yankees in, who'd, who'd started all the trouble in Massachusetts yeah. could have it. And one of my problems with
0: a lot of history books, even those that are coming out today that have finally realized there was an American Revolution, uh, was that we all learned about Bunker, Lexington and Concord, Bunker Hill, Saratoga, and then Bing, there's Yorktown. <laughs> right, the war's over. Well, how did Cornwallis get? His army was destroyed, pretty much in South Carolina, the both Carolinas, right. but especially in South Carolina. And those Tories, he kept hoping were going to appear there. That's one of the complaints that Rawdon would make is that with every partisan success, like Huck's plantation, Hook's defeat, or Williamson's plantation, the Tories kept under cover. They didn't, they didn't sign up because they signed up. They had an X basically placed on their back and they were gonna be
1: killed. Right, and one of the things that I tried to do, and then I think we probably wanna open it up to some questions. One of the things I tried to do in this, this novel was to show the other side that, that there was a British point of view which never really got much of a press because the victors tend to write the predominant histories, and if you read general moultrie's you know the, the as in Fort Moultrie, the victor of the Battle of seventeen seventy six at Sullivan 's Island, if you read uh, Ramsey's history of the revolution in South Carolina. You get a picture of the, the Tories in South Carolina, uh, to use Ramsey's phrase, as unprincipled banditti, mm-hmm. um, ignorant, unprincipled banditti. Well, they they weren't. I was reading I, I was reading accounts of of. Um, a, a Tory colonel named Robert Gray, who was clearly well-versed in his ancient history and referred to the Patriots as Goths and Vandals. Um, there, there were just countless, uh, uh, well, they're not countless because they, but the ones that have survived paint a different picture, and that's part of the picture that I want, wanted to try to convey here, based, based on history.
0: Well. A favorite tactic of both sides, because if, if they'll sometimes talk about Fort this and Fort that. Well, like Fort Mott, it basically was a plantation house that had a palisade around it. It was not Fort Apache from right. <laughs> from the John Wayne movies. Uh, but frequently, it was just a, a log cabin or barn which had been added to to quote make it a fort. Like Rocky Mountain, yeah. You know, and and one of the ways as happened with Rebecca Mott at, at Fort Mott, is you set it on fire, set the roof on fire, to get people to come out. And whereas that ended in a nice surrender, frequently, when a place was burning, as whether it was Tory or Patriot who was inside, if they came out, they were cut down. Sure. There were no prisoners.
1: If, um, if, any, if there are any questioners out there, we promise not to cut you down.
0: <laughs> well... I really like the way you were able to use 18th century terminology, because I had an issue with terminology when I did "Partisans and Redcoats" in describing what happened to uh, Major Ferguson after the Battle of Kings Mountain. Uh, I used the term in my manuscript from British correspondence: sure. the backcountry boys pissed on his body. Well, my editor up in New York said, uh, we can't use that term. And I said, I beg your pardon. She said, it's kind of crude. I said, well, it's, I don't think the backcountry boys pee on Tarleton, <laughs> <laughs> rather on Ferguson. One, that particular, uh, because it was, and I, because I, I, I pointed out, it was literally from British correspondence. Absolutely. They used absolutely a very, very proper term. Um, Stuart, it may be time for us to turn this over to the folks out there if they have any questions they would like to ask us.
1: I don't know if you can see me or not, but I'm right right here. I'm a Tar Heel, and I know my Charleston restaurants better than I know my Charleston history. Um, The Obstinate Dollar is one of my favorite restaurants on Sullivan's Island, and I know a little of that story. I think there was a cartoon published in The Punch uh, dealing with the ferocity with which the British uh, encountered the colonials when they were trying to take Charleston by sea. Do you know anything about that story and how much of it is fact and how much of it is, is fiction? You're referring to the, the Battle of Sullivan's Island in 1776? Yes, yes, sir. Um, well, I, I, I... And the term was the obstinate daughter. That was popular in oh, yes. Britain in describing it. Yeah, it was one of the it, it was one of the uh, caricature prints that were produced, and they were colored by hand, and you could buy them for uh, sixpence or a shilling. And th- that was a that was a particularly good one. Do you, do you know the one I'm referring to? Um, no, I'm... but it's it's uh, but essentially, it, the historical fact that it's based on uh, was the Battle of Sullivan's Island, which was famously the attempt of the British Navy to come into Charleston Harbor and take, take it at Fort Moultrie, um, dealt pretty severe damage to the, the British fleet. There was also supposed to be a kind of pincer movement by land forces coming from the Isle of Palms. And um, the General, General Clinton, who was commanding, was given, whether deliberately or not, false information about the depth of the channel, which many of you in the audience will know, that runs between Sullivan's Island and the Isle of Palms. So the British thought that they would be able to ford that channel in in a perfectly simple way and bring an attack on the other side of Fort Moultrie on Sullivan's Island. Unfortunately, there were a number of British soldiers who were swept out to sea from the current and the depth of that little channel just before like so. they gave up. Hey,
0: look, sadly, one or two people every year, despite the signs, <laughs> it still try to cross at the inlet and but that's a part of the battle that's frequently forgotten, and that is Danger Thompson from Orangeburg and his boys had built uh, an impromptu barricade right there. And as the British were trying to cross the inlet, those boys with their backcountry rifles kept the British from cu- that and the current in the inlet. Of course, the battle it, at it, Sullivan's it, Island, June the 28th, a great victory for the Americans, and it very much upset the, the British public because...
1: Yeah. And this was—they was lost, lost two ships. That's right. And uh, this was a problem for the British throughout the American Revolution because there were these these backcountry and lowcountry boys, but they were they were shooting rifles, which were accurate at um, distances that were twice the the range of accuracy of the British standard-issue musket. So the the Americans could basically stand off at a distance and pick off the British before the British could, could even basically bring their muskets to bear. Yeah. And that was the case at, at
0: Kings Mountain as well. Right. Weaponry was, was crucial and that sad irony for Major Ferguson, the British commander at Kings Mountain. He had actually invented a rifle for the British Army, but they didn't consider it gentlemanly to use that. So right. they were using muskets. The British Army was using muskets and we were I always had rifles.
1: Hi. I'd be interested to know um, how you approached your research, and related question, was there anything particularly surprising or interesting in that research which guided any part of the novel? The, the major part of the research was done in the impromptu fashion that as an antiquarian bookseller I've done research for the last 40 years, which is I, I look around to see what I can find, then one thing leads to another. So with, with the basic research for the novel, I went to the contemporary accounts, which were Bannister Tarleton wrote an enormously self-serving account of the campaign in, in the Carolinas, which was published in 1787, and I rather suspect was largely ghost-written by Tarleton's then-mistress, Mary Robinson, who was a beautiful actress who'd been cast off by George IV when he was Prince of Wales. Um, but I digress. What, what the, the, the most surprising thing, because I didn't really know, even though I had come to be fond of Lord Rawdon in his later life, was the extent to which he got a bad press from American historians, and the, the, to me, somewhat surprising extent to which even some American historians who were prepared to, let's say, cut Rodden a little bit of slack, were ignored. For example, I always found it surprising that Lord Rawdon's account of the hanging of Isaac Hayne, which we referred to earlier, for which he is largely blamed. And in fact, when, when Rawdon was captured by a French privateer when he left, when he left Charleston in uh, August of 1781, uh, he was captured by a French privateer and delivered a prisoner to the Comte de Grasse who was commanding the French fleet, which had bottled up Cornwallis at Yorktown. Well, the Americans wanted the French to deliver Lord Rawdon because they wanted to make an example of Rawdon in exchange for what they blamed Rawdon for, which was the hanging of Isaac Hayne. Rawdon wrote a long letter vindicating himself to some degree, and it was acknowledged by one of the writers of the later period and, and also described as an able vindication by no less a soldier than Robert E. Lee in 1869. So So, those were some surprises. Yeah, the the real bad guy here, of course, is Balfour. It's of course
0: Balfour. Who was... The way the command was set up, and they were both pulling out... This was a fight between two lieutenant colonels as to who was was really the, the guy in charge. And Cornwallis had left Balfour in charge of Charleston and that little perimeter, and the rest of the state under uh, Rawdon's command. Haine was in Charleston. It was Balfour exactly. who caused the, the hanging of, of Isaac Haine.
1: I think, I think we're about to have the cut.
0: This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you enjoyed today's journal. I enjoyed my conversation with Stuart Bennett at the Charleston Literary Festival. His novel, The Charleston Gambit, which is set in the 1780s, provides a glimpse into the Revolutionary War in South Carolina. It captures a period of South Carolina's history during the British occupation, and he does it in a very traditional style. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of The Journal.
1: Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina Public Radio. The producer and engineer is Alfred Turner. Production of this program is made possible in part by listener contributions to the
0: ETV Endowment of South Carolina. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's Journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio.